Now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Shiva Falsafi. Shiva Falsafi is a lawyer and lecturer at the UCLA Department of Women's Studies. Her research focuses on civil society and democracy, constitutional law, women's rights, and international and comparative law. She is particularly interested in the roles of women and the youth in Iran's struggle for democracy. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Falsafi. Welcome, everyone. I wanted to start off by harking back to President Obama's uh, speech for Nowruz uh, last March, where he acknowledged the prosperity of Iranian Americans and their contribution to uh, American culture. And I think his acknowledgement sort of provides a setting for our conversation because it shows the importance of the question that's being posed. Uh, what, what would be the effect of a Persian Spring on uh, Los Angeles? So even though there doesn't seem to be any sort of imminent sign of change in Iran currently, I think the question allows us to both learn a little bit more about a community that's had important impact on Los Angeles, but also to broaden the debate on Iran. Uh, so many outlets in the country, I think, are specifically focused on the nuclear crisis, on uh, the sort of the American foreign policy agenda or Iran's internal mayhem. Whereas the, the question that we're posing tonight will allow us to undertake a more intimate inquiry, uh, to really think and talk about something that's important to our uh, community. And I think most of us here know that uh, the largest uh, Iranian-American uh, community in the United States is here in Los Angeles, by some accounts, uh, up to 700,000 people. And the community has deeply impacted the city on a business and professional level and has made, I think, some serious inroads in the areas of arts uh, and humanities. So I think all these uh, questions are going to be deeply important to members of the audience, and I really welcome your engagement and look forward to the question and answer session so we can broaden the conversation. Uh, but I'm joined here tonight by three distinguished guests, and I hope after I've introduced them, they will be doing most of the talking. Uh, and I think we're going to try and pose it as a, as a two-way inquiry. What would be the impact of a Persian spring on LA? But also conversely, how could Iranian Angelinos contribute and deepen any shift that might uh, come about uh, in the country? So uh, to my right, uh, Mr. Amir Soltani is an author, filmmaker, and also a human rights activist. Uh, his uh, bestseller uh, graphic novel, Zahra's Paradise, which uh, explores the anguished search of a mother for her son in the aftermath of the 2009 presidential uh, elections in Iran has been translated into 12 languages. Uh, he is, as I mentioned, also a human rights activist. He was the director of the Semnani Family Foundation for a number of years, and as part of that started Omid for Iran. Uh, he has studied at Tufts, at uh, the uh, Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and also Harvard University. And he's also a documentary filmmaker, currently working on a film called Redemption that explores the lives of recyclers at the West 
in, in West Oakland and has received funding and support from uh, prestigious national institutions. So welcome, Amir. Thank you. Okay. Dr. Sharon Nazarian is the president of the Nazarian Family Foundation, which focuses primarily on education, policy research, arts and culture, and also uh, various Jewish and Iranian causes. Uh, she's also the founder of the Yunus and Soraya Center for Israel Studies at UCLA, and also chairs the advisory board. She also sits on the board of a number of important institutions in the United States and in Israel, and is the primary investors in a number of ventures and uh, business uh, groups. She received her bachelor's, master's, and PhD from the University of Southern California, for which we forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in, in addition to uh, having two careers, she, she also teaches as an adjunct professor in the Department of Political Science at UCLA. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Our last guest panelist is Dr. Rahim Shaigan. He's the acting director of the Program of Iranian Studies and also professor at uh, NELC uh, department at UCLA, Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. Uh, he received his uh, BA from the Göttingen University in Germany, his master's from the Sorbonne, and his PhD from, uh, from Harvard, after which he was elected a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows. His most recent book on the political ideology of the Arsacid and Sasanians was published to great acclaim by Cambridge University Press. And his next book, Aspects of History and Epic in Ancient Iran, will be out shortly by Harvard University Press. So welcome, Rahim. Thank you very much. Thank you. <clears throat> OK, so for the first question, I want to turn to Amir. Uh, because one of the areas where Iranians have garnered a lot of international attention is in the area of the arts. Uh, uh, luminaries like uh, Werner Herzog have noted that the greatest films are now being made in Iran. And harking back to the president, he, in his Nauru speech, he acknowledged that America's highest honor for a foreign film was awarded this year to Asghar Farhadi's uh, separation. So his, his harking back and noting uh, that, that accolade, I think, uh, shows the importance of the uh, question that we're posing. And it's inevitable here in Los Angeles, with the film industry being the leading industry and apparently uh, Iranian films being one of the leading exports out of the country, it's inevitable to talk about what an opening in Iran what kind of an impact that would have on, on uh, our ability to see more of Iranian film here and also the impact on the industry uh, in the country. But I just want to step back and maybe start the conversation by asking you to talk about the importance of art as a tool of social criticism. And then in light of that, what then is the importance of increasing exchange and interaction on, on the level of the arts? Thank you very much, Shiva. Thank you, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here. When I uh, sort of try to find my bearing in terms of Iranian culture and the potential and power of Iranian civilization, I tend to go back to Hafez, who's one of our greatest poets. 
And uh, he has a line which says, درخت دوستی بنشان که کام دل به بار آرد نحال دشمنی برکن که رنج بیشمار آرد Plant the tree of friendship for it brings boundless joy. Uproot the sapling of enmity for it brings boundless sorrow. And uh, as an artist, these emotions, both joy and sorrow, have been the sort of poles with which we've been working. And I feel um, and experiencing on a daily basis in many ways. The title of the film that won the uh, Oscar here was Separation. And I think the Iranian-American community in particular is keenly aware of this loss, of this distance. Um, I myself had to stay connected to my grandmother over the phone for 20 years. And so the phone, just the you know, average thing, became really my, my sole connection to Iran. What I uh, saw then and continue to see is that Iranian civilization hasn't died. Iranian culture, with its sort of rich reserves of spiritual genius, um, is far from silent and far from dead. Its potential is boundless. And so as an artist, in terms of what we can do, what the arts can offer, is to reaffirm the humanity, both here and there, in the face of some of these gaps. And, and that, that means, at a very practical level, a way of connecting Iranians back together again, which an institute and an event like this does, and connecting us both back to America and back to Iran. The potential that that offers is really extraordinary, and it's, it's manifest in, in music, in cinema, in every way. And I think for, for in terms of the sort of critique, what we as artists can do is reemphasize the connections and the humanity. That's, that's so given that art does work as a political tool as well, as a documentary filmmaker, what sort of issues do you think, if there is an opening in Iran, would merit a particular investigation? Yes. Well, that's a great question. Uh, as documentary filmmakers, we're after the truth mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times. And I feel that... That, that should be easy to find, yeah. right? <laughs> and so that's been... And as someone who's interested in history, that's... Uh, the relationship between truth and history mm -hmm. can just open up a whole range of questions that haven't been addressed. But then other things, I mean, the, the, just the ability of people to pursue their own questions, mm -hmm. whatever those questions may be, without having the ogre of fear, which we've oftentimes internalized, hanging over us. So hopefully this collective act of exorcism, this creativity, wherever it may go, mm -hmm. Is, is very welcome. For myself, if I had to do a documentary on, on Iran, I would be very interested in uh, what happened to Cinema Rex, which was a cinema which was burned very early in the uh, revolution. Right. Okay. Um, I want to uh, uh, talk a little bit now about uh, philanthropy. Philanthropy has been such a key force uh, in building America's cities and in building America's institutions. And while Iranians have this concept of charity or khairiye, uh, we're, we're sort of not that far in the game of philanthropy. And I want to turn to Sharon because your family has made uh, some very important progress in this area. So I would be... Uh, I would be very interested if you could tell us about your family's journey into philanthropic giving. You know, what are the pitfalls that you've experienced? There are others, I think, who would be interested in, in, in uh, philanthropy but have some concerns about how you can enter that and give in a thoughtful 
way. So if you could speak to that. Thank you, Shivan. And it, for me, it, it is an indeed a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, as you said, I think uh, the Iranian culture's concept of philanthropy really comes from charity, and we were raised with the concept of really looking at people, you know, beggar on the street and, and helping and having that duty of helping anybody that was needy. Coming to America and coming across a very different cultural concept of what philanthropy means, which could be large institutions with multiple vice presidents who get paid huge salaries, this was a foreign concept to mm -hmm. us. Um, as a family, the idea of philanthropy really started with my father mm -hmm. and his sense that we have to give back. He was raised um, with, by a single mother, so very self-made, um, out of depths of poverty in Tehran. And for whatever reason, as he was able to ac accumulate his wealth in Iran, lose it all, come back, come to America, regain it, and, and felt that um, whatever this country had given him, it was his duty to give back. And, and he really raised us, instilled with those concepts. As I grew and became an adult, I learned more about what philanthropy means in America. And to have the, the real gift of having impact at mm -hmm. such deep levels, um, I see myself as an investor. Uh -huh. I see our foundation as, uh, as investors in all realms that we enter into, whether it's education or it's culture or pu public policy making, to really have a voice, to have impact at levels that we were it was unseen, you know, un, 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 unthought of in Iran. Um, and to really bring whatever resources you have, to bring the ideas, to plant the seeds, to see it grow. Um, the center that we have endowed here at UCLA was really non-existent. It's Center for Israel Studies. And now it's a vibrant center of discussion and um, education and research. So to have that power, it's really tremendous. And to be able to have... Um, collaborations with institutions such as UCLA and others. Uh, so as an Iranian community, we're really learning that there is a whole culture of philanthropy that we should learn mm -hmm. and utilize and also use it as a way to voice who we are right. and, and have impact. So impact is very, very important, and I feel that you really can have it. And it seems to me that uh, uh, philanthropy is almost a right of American patrimony. So does it, does it say something, in your opinion, about marking the success of a community to be able to sort of navigate that that ultimate journey into into thoughtful giving absolutely and I think it also is a is an ethical responsibility as as um, all the immigrants uh, communities come to America you can also almost gauge where they are in that level of sophistication and level of who they've become as American hyphenated Americans mm -hmm. by the level of giving that they have by the level of engagement they have and you can even gauge where their money goes by, are they just giving to their own community or are they giving to a broader community? Those are very important levers that we can all look at, at all the hyphenated communities in America and say, this is really the impact of becoming Americanized. Right. And what, what are we now as Iranian Americans, what can we give back? What can we um, really try to influence beyond our own small community? You know, it's not so small, but really to be able to give to education in a broad sense, mm -hmm. not just to schools that Iranians attend. Those are all levers of real sophistication to me and real levers of understanding that we're part of a bigger picture here and we're all Americans. Right. 
Um, the other side of philanthropy, and Amir, I wonder if you can speak to this, is that despite the barriers, uh, individuals and groups have attempted in the past uh, 30 years to provide uh, funding for certain uh, constituencies in Iran. Can you tell us a little bit about the projects uh, that you know about, particularly sure. if any were initi initiated by folks in LA, and if there are, if there are, if there were particular um, lacunas in the way mm -hmm. that that giving was handled, what could be done to improve it, and and. Mm -hmm. Again, if in the event of an opening, where where are the areas where it uh, it it uh, it could be targeted? And I'm not going to let you uh, get away by saying everything, which <laughs> which may indeed, indeed be true. Mm -hmm. Well, one um, one sort of philanthropic uh, moment that really struck a chord with me was after the Bam earthquake. Mm -hmm. um, we had forty thousand people killed in Iran after that earthquake. And the uh, sanctions were temporarily removed to mm -hmm. allow the Iranian-American community to fundraise for earthquake relief in Iran. And the response was amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, it was fast. It was quick. And one organization that I knew about called AIRFO, mm -hmm. um, the Earthquake Relief Fund, raised something like $900,000 and, and sm in small contributions, mm -hmm. talking about sophistication. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, um, and so there was this moment where we could actually do things together. And that trust, quite apart from the earthquake, the trust and the clarity of the giving mm -hmm. was wonderful. In terms of more difficult, and of course, there is another organization here in LA that's been working on kids with cancer. And they're mm -hmm. also fabulous, really, in terms of navigating and so on. But it's hard, because uh, one aspect of philanthropy is having a deep local knowledge. It's mm -hmm. like making film. You need to know where you're stepping in, who the players are, how you, know, you need to judge the impact. Absolutely. And I remember we got a request for a kid who needed a heart transplant. Mm -hmm. It's an urgent request. It's an immediate request. And to be able to address that, we had to prove that you know, this is going to a legitimate mm -hmm. case in Iran. And that meant working with OFAC. So you're losing time. Um, finally, we got the OFAC permit. And it took several months. And in a, you know, in a case like that, it's a real problem. Then once we had the permit, we had to get all the medical documentation from Iran. Mm -hmm. We had to make sure everything is correct. So all of that was done. But finally, we got a call. We got various calls. Uh, about the doctor wanting to have the operation done in a more expensive hospital once mm -hmm. they found out that an American foundation wanted to support this. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so devastating, you know. Mm -hmm. So you can't go into these things as innocence. You're dealing ultimately with human nature, both in its beauty and in its um, sort of failings. And it takes experience to be able to navigate that. And I think that's something that we need a little bit more time for. So the bringing together of local knowledge from, from the, both ends. Absolutely. And, and the streamlining of sort of various institutional processes is where effort would have to yes, would have to governmental sure. trust. I mean there's right right now there's no trust. Right, so right so now it but it's but presumably if we're talking the about the day after then remove a lot of hurdles right, we're, right there. We're gonna use yeah. a lot of movie metaphors. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's let's turn to uh, the area of academics because that's another area like the Nazarian Family Foundation where there has been some effort to uh, 
uh, nurtured by Iranian uh, Americans or Iranian uh, Angelinos. And uh, I, want, uh, I wonder if, Rahim, you could tell us how you think uh, academic institutions and intellectuals would become more intertwined in the event of an opening uh, in the country, if you could talk about that. Sure, they should actually avoid being involved. There, there you go. Uh, thank you very much no, indeed. No for, negative comments yes. tonight. <laughs> I shall restrict myself. Thank you for, um, indeed for the audience for participating in this event. Uh, maybe um, I should begin with um, a, slight, uh, a slight prelude to this. Uh, we are obviously not the only, um, <clears throat> the only diaspora in LA. There has been other diasporas, right? same condition. Uh, maybe not as strong as we are, but there have been, um, in the wake of the uh, Second World War, there have been a very strong German presence here. Uh, and great families, writers, uh, like the Mann family, have been residing at the Pacific Palisades. Uh, what is so important about this is that one of them, uh, the son of uh, Thomas Mann, Klaus Mann, wrote a very interesting perspective of the German diaspora and what their lacuna is. And um, he was in the same condition as we are nowadays. Mm -hmm. And the first thing he said, well, you know, we are bad, you know, bad people. We cannot connect. We, um, we are unable to go beyond and transcend our pettiness, which but ultimately they managed. Uh, but what he said is that we have not been able to think so focused we were on how to deal with uh, with the uh, ogre, as you mentioned, yeah. that we have focused on what, what comes thereafter. Yeah. And, and that is a very ex extraordinarily important question. So right. what are we going to do thereafter? What is going to be happening thereafter? What is the vacuum that is left once, right. uh, once there is some opening and some evolution? And that is what he tried to address, and that is what he was describing. And the same thing is true for us to some extent as well. Uh, that academia is a place where obviously thought Mm -hmm. and uh, thought processes have to be uh, privileged. And what we can do is to think about <clears throat> what, are, what are the possibilities of uh, people living within an academic setting benefiting from certain liberties and freedoms that we don't have maybe in, uh, back, back in the home country. What can they do in order to represent uh, maybe an ideal exalted world that can be not maybe transposed but can serve as a model of possible emulation with all the changes that it should be subject to. So what do we do here? What, what is very interesting, I can give an example of some of the things we are doing at UCLA mm -hmm. and also then expand on that if you permit me to do so. Mm -hmm. um, for example, uh, the UCLA program of UN studies um, has been the great um, beneficiary of many endowments, mm -hmm. speaking about philanthropy. But these endowments are interesting because it represents most of the all segments of the Iranian community, all confessions, mm -hmm. all interests. So we have uh, endowed chairs um, for um, obviously for Iranian literature, for ancient Iran, but we have an endowed chair for uh, you, you know, uh, Judo Persian. Mm -hmm. We have an endowment for a very important lectureship in the uh, for the Taslim, uh, I'm sorry, endowment by the Taslimi family about the. Um, uh, the uh, Baha'i faith and religion. So what it means is that this, this, um, this collection of Iranians is able here to interact with each other and create a discourse, uh, a type of dialogue of which we have not been uh, beneficiary uh, in my youth or in my childhood, and of which obviously the present Iranian people are not uh, uh, able to partake. So that in, in a small context, we are basically creating the type of democratic discourse we intend to 
have as an ideal back in the country. And that this obviously can serve as a model of emulation, yeah. even though it might be very arrogant to say that we shall be you know, transporting this back home, that is not the case, but we can at least exercise the, uh, the, discourse, or, uh, the, the discourse of democracy, a type of discursive democracy that we have, beat all Iranians involved, all confessions involved, and have something of the sort replicated back home. So as part of then, um, I, I, I'm just uh, uh, wondering, if, as part of this idea of what can Iranian Angelinos or Iranian Angelino intellectuals, we're really going to hyphenate identities mm -hmm. here, um, uh, have to contribute uh, in the event of a change. Uh, can, can work be done on a more programmatic level as well? I mean, obviously, it's important to do work as far as how Iran's democracy, if it ever comes, will negotiate civil liberties, the rights of minorities, uh, women's rights, and so on. Should that all be combined with a more targeted, programmatic approach to... to because? All of that comes about if, in fact, there is some thought given to the institution of the judiciary or the diversification of the economy. I mean, sh can, can more targeted investigation be, be done? Would that be a source of accumulated expertise that would be available in, in the event of a change? I mean, it, is, um, it is fundamental that it mm -hmm. shall be done. And uh, again, not on political issues solely, but on matters that are important for the day after, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, even if uh, we were presented, let's say, a country uh, on a silver plateau, uh, it, it, it has an economy. It has politics of energy and power, especially with a rentier state like ourselves, uh, that is relying upon, uh, for 90% of its incomes, uh, upon the oil income. Uh, what to do with this economy? How to make it, uh, how to make it less dependent upon this uh, uh, this income that is also a preventive measure for democratization. You know, the economy of a rentier state is working both ways. It allows you to make a leap forward. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it uh, makes the, the democratic participation more aloof. It prevents citizen partisanship uh, or citizen participation because uh, you can pay them off, basically. Mm -hmm. and, and it makes them also aloof because they don't want to be, they are not that invested because the strict minimum is guaranteed. So what is important is to, for example, to establish um, conferences, uh, workshops around key problems like the issue of energy in Iran, mm -hmm. the issue of water, of mm -hmm. which we are deprived like every Middle Eastern country uh, back there, um, matters of constitutional uh, reform. Uh, you know, what is the status of women within a reformed mm -hmm. constitution? How should that be addressed? Matters of education. Uh, how, how should the education be secular at the mm -hmm. same time uh, preserving this diverse mosaic of identities we spoke to. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of these are things that we have just the liberty to do, not the monopoly to do, but the liberty to do. Mm -hmm. And it shall not be taken uh, uh, per se, but it can be indeed accommodating. Sharon, yeah. I just wanted to add that as we all go around international conferences where um, scholars from Iran do attend, mm -hmm. you really see uh, a camaraderie mm -hmm. and you really see um, really detailed and deep, deep collaboration between Iranian and, and scholars all around the world, especially with Iranian-American scholars. I mm -hmm. really see that. I mean, I've attended lots of uh, track two meetings where you have um, professors and academics from Iran come a lot of times with very great difficulty. A lot of times, really, they have to go through so many hurdles to be able right. to attend these conferences. But once they come, 
they feel such camaraderie with the rest of academia there, with the rest of NGOs, whoever is there, that I feel that the day after, Iran is just going to explode. I mm. really feel an explode in a good way. Mm -hmm. I feel that the level of, it's all there. The foundation is there. Our community here in Los Angeles, in New York, throughout Europe, we're all poised mm -hmm. for that day that openness will allow us to build on what's already been there but mm -hmm. has had to take place outside Iran. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, so much of what's happened in acad academia outside Iran has been to take what was not allowed to take place in Iran and continue to build it. Mm -hmm. um, that scholarship will explode as well. So I think at every level you can imagine, um, you, you were talking about art, Look at what, what the Iranian community has done outside America in terms of novels and, yes. and great authorship. We have a wonderful author here with us today, Mrs. Dara Levy, who's written beautiful, beautiful um, novels. Mm -hmm. We're all poised and we all are hungry to be able to collaborate. Um, it's just that we're waiting for the day that we can. And, right. and I think the foundation is there. And in every, every segment of society, look at political, economics, cultural, social, it's all there, and, and the day after will mean we can just go and do the, the task that's at hand. And um, what's interesting is that I think that can be tied up with um, the civil society in Iran itself. Absolutely. I mean, despite incredible barriers, certain communities within that civil society have managed to both carve Absolutely. out a breathing space and a vibrancy. Absolutely. So I think, you know, the, the, the uh, exciting part is not that we're going to go and take anything in particular there, but we have an accumulated expertise here. And we might be confronted with a civil society that would be very receptive to Absolutely. joining those uh, resources uh, together. Um, I want to I wanna talk a little bit about the issue of uh, grappling with uh, the notion of identity and diaspora. So I was wondering if you could talk about uh, the experiences of the Iranian Jewish community here. How, has, how have members of the community navigated their multiple identities, and how has that impacted uh, the city? What has been the impact of, of, of that? So talk about hyphenated. We're you know, <laughs> yeah, double hyphenated. Yes. And, and those identities are very much intact, uh, and very much they're not competing identities. So. What we brought with us from Iran um, as a minority community in Iran has now kind of um, acculturated into a larger, larger identity of Iranian Jewish Americans. Um, in some ways, there's some positive aspects to it. There are some negative aspects. And as a community, we do tend to be still quite insular. Mm -hmm. um, I find one of my uh, biggest um, challenges with our Iranian Jewish community is to, tell, to look at the younger generation and say, open yourselves up. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in terms of identity, where we get caught is with the political situation with Iran, mm -hmm. where we have dual, dual allegiances. Mm -hmm. We care about Iran. We love Iran. We care about Israel, and we love Israel as mm -hmm. Jewish people. Mm -hmm. So when you these two countries that we feel spiritual, um, I mean, we have allegiance to both of them. When they're going head to head, and one speaks about wiping the other one off the map, mm -hmm. um, it really puts us in a very difficult position. It puts us in a difficult position when we think about the Jews who are left in Iran. There's mm -hmm. still about mm -hmm. 15 to 20,000 Iranian Jews, um, Jews left in Iran. And about that community, and will they be held hostage if mm -hmm. Israel, God forbid, does take any sort of military action? So we are torn. We are... Um, 
you know, we have competing allegiances sometimes, but the fact that we're Iranians, it is stronger than ever, and I see that in the younger generation. You see them with their love of the music, their love of self-identifying themselves as Iranians, but so is the Jewish part. Mm -hmm. and, and those things, I think, enrich us mm -hmm. um, most of the time, but sometimes we do get caught, especially with all the rhetoric now about the, the nuclear uh, problems with Iran and Israel. Um, we find ourselves very torn and very worried, actually. Yeah. And, um, and it, it puts us in difficult situations sometimes in terms of where, what should the future look like. Of course, everybody would love to have no violence, no military action. Um, but when the rhetoric gets to a level of you know, attacking a country like Israel that we all love so much, that really creates a very, very difficult dilemma for us as a community. Do you feel that uh, in the event that there is an opening, there will be much of an interest in the Jewish-Iranian uh, community in taking part in sort of uh, uh, revitalizing the country, contributing to very that much. process? And yeah, very much so. I think the Iranian-Jewish community has maintained its ties with Iran. Mm -hmm. Those who are able to go, my family, for example, were not able to go. We were blacklisted right away. But those who are able to go, continue to go back, um, feel very much connected. And I think the day after that we keep mentioning okay. would lead to lots of, lots of collaboration, lots of connections. Um, whether the whole community would get up and move back to Iran, I would question. I right. think um, as a minority community, we have found the freedoms that we have here mm -hmm. um, enriching. And, and we are now Iranian-Americans. Um, some will go back, but I think the, the level of uh, collaboration, connections will be very deep. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, as Iranians, that part of our identity is very strong. Yes. Now, it's important to acknowledge the uh, uh, presence of conflict within a yeah. sort of a, a, a community's identity. But I want to transition to something that I think is a total unifier for all Iranians, which is um, uh, sort of preserving Iranian heritage, Iranian cultural and historical uh, uh, heritage. And I wonder, Rahim, if you could tell us uh, a little bit about what is the state of sort of the ancient uh, uh, um, uh, patrimony that uh, Iran has? Uh, has there been a great deal of neglect? And then if you could tell us about uh, what, what should be done uh, when change comes, what in particular needs to be uh, protected, how that approach should be undertaken, and so on. Uh, thank you, Shiva. I, you know that I'm not an archaeologist, but nonetheless, I shall You're respond. closer to it than the rest of us, <laughs> trust <for> me. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, there, is, um, there is also an impact uh, um, on, on, on LA, uh, the thing I'm going to say. Um, the, obviously, the patrimony has been um, uh, not as, uh, to, to the extent as we, have, we would have desired, or to the extent that uh, used to be the case uh, three, four decades ago. Uh, some of it has to do with obviously with changed ideologies, um, uh, and uh, that is obviously that uh, the ancient Iranian past is being uh, neglected because it is not part of the concept of the Islamic Ecumenia, but that is exactly the past to which every Iranian can connect easily. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, uh, and there have been obviously major, major administrative uh, uh, errors that have been committed. So, for example, a very uh, functioning and uh, valuable organization called the Iran um, uh, Heritage Organization uh, has been decimated. Um, and so it has, was a cadre of 500 people there, mm -hmm. and now there are just 80 people just working. For obviously a country that has uh, monuments and, and reliefs on almost every corner. 
so uh, it is a bad state. But uh, what, is, um, what is specifically interesting with respect to uh, Los Angeles is that uh, we have actually LACMA, and LACMA has been interested in, in uh, providing a helping hand to at least represent these monuments, whatever is remaining from them. Uh, 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 through a very enterprising and uh, young and brilliant uh, um, uh, curator um, uh, of the ancient uh, uh, Iranian collection to present this to the Iranian community because these monuments are collective memories. And as such, uh, we should not be uh, negligent about the fact that every nation, uh, while rejuvenating itself, uh, draws upon its past as well and that this past has the, the impact of or the influence of allowing you to, to coalesce around the core values of a country. Not that we should obviously look always at these old empires, but it can help us indeed to navigate through uh, moments of, uh, uh, of trouble and political, uh, political uh, turbulence. So the most important thing we can do is to allow these collective memories, at least the images, to be conveyed to the larger uh, uh, to the larger Iranian community here, so that uh, we can occasionally be associated with some notions of art rather than the terrorism <laughs> which we are usually attacked of. It, it's always good to diversify Maybe. that, that impression. Absolutely. I'd like to know what is being done about chronicling the Iranian experience in Los Angeles since the arrival of the first immigrants after the Shah until now and its impact on the city. Are we putting that into a legacy? There are several books that have been written uh, uh, on a descriptive level, sort of describing the Iranian uh, uh, community in LA and uh, its various um, uh, diverse groups and its activities. Although I think what I'm understanding from the question is whether there's been anything that chronicles the experience on a much deeper level. And I, I'm not aware of uh, anything. I don't know. The if only any organization that comes to my mind, and this is within the Iranian Jewish community, is called the Oral History Project, mm -hmm. which does um, document um, um, interviews with members of the Iranian Jewish community. And maybe not even so much life here, but about life in Iran, how it used to be as a minority uh, community in, in Iran. So I think we have not come to a very systematic um, structure that would document our lives. And I think after 30-some years of being here, maybe it's, it's time. We've kind of been busy for the past 30 years trying yeah, to survive. Trying to adjust. <laughs> trying to adjust. Um, but I think we're really coming to those questions. That's a very important question. Thank you. Something pops in my mind about an oral history project we that was being done at yeah, Harvard. Harvard. Yeah, but uh, that, yeah. that, that yes. uh, relates to sort of Iranian-Americans yeah. in general. And it would but be it's, an it's interesting... But it's exactly along the same line as... Uh, and it would be, yeah. Both would yeah. be an interesting interesting paradigm for doing something much more systematic yeah. for the community in Los Angeles. That I haven't been to Iran for 30 years, and I've, I've been following the Iran culture, history, everything you could imagine, and I really thought I'm an Iranian. Till last week, I met a friend of mine, which I haven't seen for 30 years. That was the point, that's the disappointment, I think. As much as I thought I'm connected to the country, the only thing we had in common it was our memories and the language. Mm -hmm. I don't know, how can you say we can keep the connection? I don't see the connection, I, don't, I see the separation. Excellent observation and it also brings in this postmodern notion of identity, the notion that identity is transitional and it's shifting. 
And I think we can't possibly deny the fact that for someone who's been in Los Angeles for 30 years, clearly their identity is going to uh, develop in ways that will be different in, uh, uh, from someone who has spent those decades in Iran. Certainly, we're not the only culture facing this. When the East European uh, regimes fell, there was some contribution from outside, and people had had those shifting identities for 70 years. So I think. The, we don't want to give the sense of presumed arrogance that, you know, we from here will know exactly how to deal with uh, the problems in Iran. The, the idea, I think, that's important is that there are expertise that have been developed by members of the Iranian-American community. And this sort of conversation allows us, I think, to focus on how our work about Iran can become more targeted and more programmatic mm -hmm. in a way that relies less on shifting mm -hmm. identities. And of course, any opening that we're talking about talk, uh, really r relies on those two separate groups, those in the diaspora and those in Iran, wishing to perhaps join certain resources. And if, if that, if that uh, uh, desire is there, then I think it behooves us to have a conversation that allows us to identify what's available and what, uh, what Just exists. to confirm what you're saying, I think, uh, I haven't been to Iran in 30 years as well, but what I hear is that the minute an Iranian-American steps foot in the streets of Tehran and speaks fluent Farsi, mm -hmm. the local Tehran residents know that you were not in the country for the past 30 well, years. Maybe it's not exactly fluent. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a few words of English peppered in there. So I think your point is very, very well made. But I don't think we made the argument that we are the same people. Yeah. I think there's very clear um, recognition that after 30 years of living in America, our identity as Iranian Americans is vastly different and has evolved in a different way than those who stayed. Yeah. But what the point I think we're raising is that if there is going to be a day after, is there, if there's going to be an Iranian spring, the, the, well, that's a personal choice. And I don't, as I said, I think in the Iranian Jewish community, the numbers will be smaller. But I think the point is that there is such goodwill and there's such a desire to collaborate, to work together, without an arrogance that we're better and they're worse. I think it's a two-way street. It's a discourse. It's a conversation. But I think the desire is really there, not because we're the same exact people, but because we have a lot to give to each other and we have real, a real desire. I think, why don't you try to jump in? And, and well, I think you, know, you have a lot to say. Thanks. Yeah, it's strange what you ask because I, um, I left Iran when I was 12 and I didn't go back for about maybe 20 years or so and this constant conversation with my grandmother that I would come back someday. And so after 20 years, I went back to Iran. And so the kids that I knew who were two were 22. My aunts who were in their 50s were in their 70s. And it was a little bit like, um, uh, before Rahim uh, jokes about this, it was a little bit like Sleeping Beauty, mm -hmm. although I may not take, <laughs> take that, to claim that. But, but you open your eyes to that world and you see how it's changed. And yet the depth of the connection that you would feel if you were to go back to your own, in my case, to your family. And the sense that I had always when I left Iran was that I was forced to leave Iran. And so an, uh, uh, a certain Iran I will hold on to until I can go back and reconnect with it and reclaim it. And maybe after that I will let go. But uh, the connections to me were very deep. They spoke in many ways. 
The converse of that is that my uh, school, uh, we had a school in Tehran which was shut down right after the revolution. And we got together in LA 30 years later. It was our first reunion. Mm. And it was also, again, this thing that the past just bubbling up in different ways. And I sometimes wonder if it's, you know, there's an element of trauma to what we've gone through as a community. So some degree of distance from Iran is almost necessary if you're going to rebuild a life here. And yet the call of that country, the depth of it, the beauty of it, and the suffering that's going, th going on there makes it impossible for you to let go. And, and let's not forget, like the Ir Iran's Jewish community, our historical memory is a deep one. And so 10 years, 20 years in terms of Iranian history hasn't really amounted to much. And so I think as Iranian Americans, again, if I, to touch on the wealth aspect of this, we have about $1.3 trillion in assets, according to the Islamic Republic. Good, good source. Yeah. <laughs> According and and yet Iran. Well, look it up in the Library of yeah, Congress. And yet Iran's non-oil exports are about 11 billion dollars. So it comes to 165 dollars per person, and so there's a sense of a sense of giving back to Iran. We've benefited from that country, so we want to give back to that country. So it works on many levels. Mm -hmm. Also, I think the goal really by this conversation is to broaden the conversation on Iran, not mm -hmm. to force anybody to feel that they have to contribute. But I think there is a lot of shared sentiment where people are still focused on Iran, and they may want to you know, get involved somehow. The question is to broaden the conversation, to talk about the day after, to talk mm -hmm. about you know, the, the non-sexy things, like an energy program, or the sexy things like women's rights, you know, all, all of those are part of the debate. And it's important, I think, to broaden it beyond what most of American media is focusing on today. Ms. Nazarian said during, uh, when she was talking about Israel, that, that uh, one country swore to destroy the other or something like that. And I think you were referring to this quote from Ahmadinejad, but my understanding from Juan Cole at the University of Michigan is that that was a mistranslation. And so I'd like all four of you to clarify whether that was actually said and what the proper translation is. From what I understand, I think that it was not a mistranslation, and he has, Ahmadinejad has said it multiple times, <clears throat> and, and I, I, don't I don't have a sense that it was mistranslated, but maybe I, Shiro, I you have a sense. I think there is some semantic issue there. The important thing is that Ahmadinejad has said things that have jeopardized Iran's relations with a lot of countries, and he has, uh, he has been, uh, uh, aggressive in his uh, posture, to say the least. And of course, tonight, the point is not to have the debate focus on what every other outlet uh, in the US is talking about, which is uh, possibilities of war and nuclear invasion uh, and so on. But there is certainly sort of a political escalation that's gone on on both sides. And again, I feel that this focus on broadening the conversation allows us to, to um, step away from that and look in a, in a more diverse direction. I don't know if the other two want to say anything. Uh, no, I, I don't think that even if, if, even if there are very subtle issues of semantics, I think the intent was clear. 
and um, you should take it as what it is, but uh, obviously it's not representing um, anything bad Mr. Ahmadinejad himself, that's it. The, the good news is Ahmadinejad doesn't have any power to do, <laughs> to do anything about what he says, but he's a kook. I mean, there's, there's, there's just no doubt about it. Uh, but I think it, 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 it even makes more pertinent the need to really focus on, on practical things when the opportunity comes. I mean, this will be, to some extent, a fairly devastated country. So it's, I think it's a very positive thing if we can step away from this particular tension and to focus on what is it that we can do? How is it that we can make sure women have a table when we get to negotiate a constitution, if we ever get to negotiate a constitution, to avoid the sort of scenario we have in Iraq where women were not allowed to sit at the negotiating uh, table. And as a result, we have a constitution that doesn't represent their rights necessarily. Uh, to, to be more prepared than where I see a lot of the countries are going in, in uh, North Africa. And again, I'm not talking about a bunch of uh, uh, Iranian Angelinos just getting on the plane and going over there. This is if the community there, which has struggled, fought bravely to keep a breathing space for women and other constituencies, wants a coming together of those resources. And what better for us to think in very practical terms about how those resources can be accumulated, what can be investigated. Shiva, this, as you said, in regards to Iraq, but especially what we see is happening in the Middle East, um, in Egypt and Tunisia. I mean, so many of those countries reached the day after and were caught unprepared. So I think your mm -hmm. point is very well taken, that as a community here in Los Angeles, maybe one thing we can contribute is coming up with some of those practical issues, at least starting to discuss it at least starting to plan for it in whatever way we can on this end. I think it's a wonderful and important role that we can play. It's a huge yeah. contribution we can make is to go to those practicalities that Egypt and Tunisia and all those countries are really grappling with right now. And it takes time, of course, and revolutions don't happen overnight. But as a community, that could be our contribution, I think, making very practical, tangible um, additions to what they're going through. Do you see any seeds within Islam for example, within Iran, these different entities encompassed there within the culture of different groups. Is there some, are there some seeds for an evolutionary process that might encompass some of the desires you want, uh, as well as uh, maybe some unforeseen, can you see unforeseen things which might change Iran for the day after in a way other than invasion, uh, a re violent revolution, etc. I think uh, none of us uh, um, envisaged um, uh, the type of uh, uh, more <clears throat> brutal changes that you uh, mentioned. Um, evolution is the word that you are embracing as well, so it can take different forms. Uh, uh, since we are experiencing more rapid evolutions in the Middle East, and since the title of this, uh, um, of this event is also uh, the so-called spring, um, it, it seems to be more, uh, more, you know, more radical and more uh, quick-paced than maybe uh, uh, the evolution we usually nurture and have in mind. But the idea is evolution, and the seeds of evolution are indeed present in Iranian culture, at least in the 100 years of constitutional debates that we have been carrying. But I think that is the word I would like to pass on to Shiva, since he's working on the constitutional uh, uh, evolution as well. But uh, we have indeed experienced uh, many up and downs, and we have had a very vibrant civil society for at least 100 years with many cesure. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, we are capable of that discourse. We not have been 
unfortunately able to establish the institutions to carry them. Shiva, I think the angle or the question, while it's uh, quite clear why, why it comes up and why it, on some level it's pertinent about whether this sort of an evolutionary process is possible with Islam is, is almost distracting, you know, because uh, 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 as I mentioned, I, we need to keep the discussion to some extent positive. Do I think that it's possible to have sort of a political reform or a constitutional uh, framework that allows the various constituencies to come together, I do think it's possible. I think there is an enormous level of creative work going on on a constitutional level that was never represented at the table in Iraq or Afghanistan or any of the other countries that we went into. And there is ways that I think we can protect uh, civil liberties, the rights of minorities, women's rights, and then also put, leave into a constitutional framework for some sort of a, a, a mutual respect for all religions, including Islam. It doesn't have to be uh, limited uh, to Islam. I don't think uh, after all that Iran has gone through with 30 years of uh, the Islamic Republic, we need to uh, go to a table that talks about Islam as being the religion of the country and so on and so forth. But I think it's entirely possible to balance, for example, the most challenging thing is to balance religious liberty and uh, gender equality. And this is something that uh, one can take uh, uh, a lot of heed from uh, the American constitutional experience the current experience that we're having. There's a lot of debate and tension that goes on within our American framework with those, with those two uh, sentiments and uh, plenty of wrong decisions are along the way. And I think uh, one thing, for example, that a constitutional expert that's familiar with both systems can do is to learn from the mistakes that have happened and to then re, uh, uh, reapply a, a, a better uh, paradigm to any possible constitutional framework. So I think certainly evolution is possible and certainly constitutional framework that respects uh, civil liberties, women's rights, and so on, that, and, and, and also embraces the uh, country's general culture. I, I, of course it's possible. Not only is it possible, we have to strive to go there because the other uh, <coughs> paradigms in the Islamic countries have, have shown us something that we don't want to pursue, quite, quite frankly. Question. I would say I think it's all of our wishes that it is evolutionary rather than revolutionary. You, you speak up. You have well, a lot to say on this. <laughs> you have to say, of course it's evolutionary. I don't think so, uh, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I knew he had something um, in there. I think we have to face Khomeini's legacy head on and face his Islam head on and say very clearly, there's no time, patience, or room for this uh, in Iran and in its future. It's like the Soviet Union. You have to deal with the legacy of Stalin. Uh, so that's where I come down on this. Um, having said that, I have to say that it's Iran's clergy in Rom right now who are amongst the most serious critics of the Islamic Republic. And in fact, none of the higher ranking Iranian religious leaders, including Ayatollah Shariat Madari, backed this system, I'll state. Uh, and, and so um, I don't see a future for this in Iran. And what I feel is happening 
is an implosion of something that's fraudulent and illegitimate. And that's inevitable. The question is, uh, as you, you were mentioning, the question is, will we be able to hold this beautiful country and prevent it from being shred to pieces when that happens? Because what the government has been doing is essentially making reform very difficult. And with 700,000 yeah, 700, Iranian Americans here in Los Angeles, I've always wanted to know why Iranian Americans are no, not more civically active. Um, we can easily form a voting bloc, and I think that we have a lot of power um, and are political um, in nature. But I just wanted to know if you all have any insight on that um, and if question. there's anything that I don't know about. Well, there is a PAC um, uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, there's an organization, it's a national organization called the Public Affairs Alliance of Iranian Americans. Uh, it's a membership grassroots organization that does have a PAC. But I think your question is very valid. Um, as I like to think of it, I think we've, we've taken the first 30 years of experience in America to really kind of put our roots down and build our families and educate our children and build our businesses. But it's time. I think you're absolutely right. We have very little voice. Um, especially in the political arena, um, and I think we need to do more in that regard. Um, and I think it's time, absolutely, and to really think of ourselves as, as Americans. And, uh, of course, foreign policy gets in the way sometimes and, and, um, and makes it difficult, but I think as Iranian-Americans, we also have to think about what is our voice here in America and, and what role we need to play within the political arena. Um, and uh, you see now that Iranians are um, uh, taking part in, in the political um, environment. They are running for office. Um, and the public sphere has become an arena where we're now tackling more so than we have had in the past 30 years. But there's lots of room in that regard. And, and I encourage you to, to do that. I think um, the next generation is really poised to do that. A lot of the, the baggage we brought with us mm -hmm. as, you know, we all probably came around the same age to America and we were 12, 13. Our children will be the ones who will take tackle that and, and hopefully really make our voices heard as, as a community here in America. And just on a practical level, I think forums like this that allow us to focus on questions that are both practical and also unifying help perhaps a more uh, a united approach to civic engagement. I think I'm probably the same generation as those of you on stage, probably a little bit older, and my question actually refers to the next generation and the one after that. They're not represented here. And, <laughs> sorry, they're not. But um, Dr. Nazarian has uh, referred a couple of times to that. Um, in 1980 or 81, when I was living uh, in Europe, I got in a taxi, and the driver was Iranian. It was in Vienna, I think. And he cracked a taxi driver's joke, oh, you know, revolutions, the first hundred years are the hardest. <laughs> and to hear that back then, you know, to my ears, um, of course it was funny, but it reminds me that we didn't really have any idea how long um, the regime, you know, what what... What, would what the future would entail, how long it would be. And we still don't there. And I'm wondering what you know of efforts, either you know, on a personal level or professional level, to encourage the, the next generations to have not only an interest in Iran and what's going on there, but really how they see their role in, 
in being staying involved as Iranian Americans. I really see the the next generation very deeply connected with their with their roots and their identities. In fact, sometimes surprisingly so. Mm. I am really um, surprised sometimes of how deeply Iranian they see themselves, even though they were born here and raised here. Farsi is definitely their second language in, in our home. I think probably in some of your homes, maybe they speak even better Farsi than my home. But, you know, the first one you do really well and you really stick to, to the Farsi. And mm -hmm. then the second one comes and you kind of go, oh, and the third one hardly. So it's a losing battle, unfortunately. But but their identity is very much cemented into who, who they are. And, and I think I agree that the work will be in their hands in many, many arenas. Um, we are immigrants. Um, we have our own battles to fight and to really f try to find who we are and really figure out mm. where do we fall on, on lots of questions. Um, the next generation who were born here um, are Americans. Um, and whether they grapple with the question of going back to Iran or not, for example, I know in my family that will not be a question. We will not be going back to Iran. That's not a future that I've raised them with. The future for them is here in America and who they can be as, as Iranian Americans and what will that identity mean to them. My 17-year-old graduated high school last week. She's going to George Washington University. She wants to study international relations, loves politics, loves Middle East. Um, and that's kind of in her blood. It's in her genes. I don't think she would have had any other option, the poor thing, you know. Um, so we'll see what they do with it. I, I, I'm very hopeful. I see our next generation... Um, outdoing this generation by leaps and bounds. I'm very hopeful they're educated, they're engaged, they're committed, and they're very passionate. So they've probably taken the best of what we had to offer as parents and what America's had to offer to them. And, and they really get it. They don't take things for granted. I really see our children appreciative of the gifts this country's given to us because they're close to us as immigrants to really see that but also to know what are the boundless opportunities that they have to go and take advantage of. So I'm very hopeful about our next generation, and I see my own children, and I'm just, you know, my jump, my heart jump, jumps out with joy. I'm very, very excited. What we're going to do is send our girls to Sharon to raise them. <laughs> clearly, you know, there's, so, she's uh, doing something right. <laughs> maybe on a uh, less um, personal uh, note, um, uh, but in the business of academia, Obviously, we see uh, uh, children and youngsters being interested in Iran. Um, uh, not only are they uh, overpopulating all these language courses that Dr. Hariri is uh, being burdened with, uh, for, uh, uh, and uh, we just cannot accommodate the thousand enrollments that we have on a yearly uh, basis in Iranian studies. Uh, um, so there's not only these, these youngsters, you know, around uh, 17 to 20-something uh, who want to learn Persian, and uh, which, for which we cannot create enough courses uh, and uh, uh, not provide enough resources to accommodate all of them. We see also a huge increase of uh, graduates uh, of uh, Iranian descent and others who are interested in working on the doctoral thesis about uh, on Iran, uh, all phases of it, you know, ancient, medieval, modern. And uh, so uh, we are the largest program, but we cannot accommodate. So on a given year, we have to reject 30, 40 uh, people applying for, uh, for doctoral studies here uh, and who would be qualified if you had more resources. So uh, they are interested. They are hugely interested. We just have the mean to accommodate them. And um, our purpose obviously is not to instill in them any notion of return or any ideologies, but we would love to educate them. And obviously that is the mean mm. for them to reconnect and become resources 
uh, that we can rely on uh, for any possible changes, even if they decide to stay here, because they will be very strong allies, even here, uh, as long as they're committed uh, to some extent with affinity uh, emotionally or cerebrally to, to the country of uh, the ancestors, uh, so to say. So we, we have a huge amount of interest. There is no, you are not um, in need of that, but more resources. <laughs> my, um, if a little story on this. My uh, brother is married to a Korean, so my, the next generation of the family is Korean-Iranian-American. <laughs> and um, so his wife, who's Korean, took him to an Iranian kindergarten when he was five or four. And the headmistress there asked, does your son speak Farsi? And of course, he hasn't been learning Farsi at home. And so um, my brother's wife said, no. And this little kid down there said, yek, do, se, <laughs> counting in Farsi. And so, you know, there's something there that's kind of beautiful. And how it gets nurtured is obviously yeah. up to the parents. They don't get to tend, though. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just thank the panelists for their wonderful comments? Yeah.